I think what's kind of defining this upcoming generation of developing brands versus what we call kind of legacy brands is closeness to consumer psychology. This is the Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer, brand, and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. Matt Scandlin is the founder of Nardum, which is a digital native Kashmir business that has the most incredible story behind it, whereby he literally went into Mongolia to source the uh, Kashmir required to create a completely vertically integrated digital native brand. He's also now uh, entered into a partnership with Ariel Charnas of Something Navy, as well as Takoon, uh, to build their brands with them. And so there's a little platform of, or not so little platform, of three businesses that he's now steering. Uh, and I think it's a, a remarkable example of how uh, creativity and being able to bring together many different kinds of, uh, of, of brands, but sitting on one platform can be fascinating. We also talk about how important media and the video that they created to launch Nardum, uh, which really was them being their own influencer and had millions of views on YouTube. And um, you know, he's a wealth of information and um, we should really get started. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we've known each other for quite some years, and, and you know your your business is huge now. And when we started working together, it was uh, not so huge. I was hustling around New York City. I ride, remember I used to ride my bike up to your office. Yeah, but you have the best dressed guy on the bicycle. I can <laughs> say that. Um, so just for those who don't know you, and I think if you have a, a pulse in this industry, uh, you probably know Nardum, but. You know, there's a rather romantic story behind the whole thing. You've told it a billion times, maybe tell it a billion and one times, mm -hmm. uh, and I'll sort of fill in the gaps because it's a really charming story. Yeah, um, I have told it a billion times, but um, I enjoy telling it because it's my life story, basically. And um, so I think we've known each other for six or seven, six or seven years. Correct. Right? Um, and at that time, you know, we were st still trying to figure out what what it was we were going to become. Um, I was a 23, 24-year-old kid who didn't know anything about fashion, I guess, or apparel. Um, didn't think I was ever going to be in that industry. And in fact, um, kind of didn't want to be. And I think even today, uh, I still don't want to be. You know, I make sure I compartmentalize, uh, which is, I hear, pretty healthy. Yeah, now you, you, you see what happens under the water. The <laughs> swan has to paddle very, very fast. Very, right? very fast. But so, yeah, we first got into this um, very serendipitously. It was an accident, right? Um, I took some time off from work, went traveling, ended up in Mongolia, uh, was coaxed into a day trip that turned into a month-long, what's the best way to phrase this, uh, 
excursion, adventure. Revelation. Yeah, revelation probably is the most accurate term. Your, your, your car or motorbike broke down, right? Uh, everything broke down. My, <laughs> uh, my mental state broke down. Um, we, we took this trip. We basically got left in this remote region of Mongolia known as the Outer Gobi. And uh, a family of nomadic herders in Mongolia took us in. And at first, I was obsessed with all the things that made us different because I was uncomfortable. Fine, took us in because there's a yurt involved. <laughs> Explain, give a little, you know, <laughs> describe the scene. Uh, it's a unique one. So, uh, first of all, Mongolia as a country is uh, very special in that it's one of the least densely populated places in the world. It's three million people. Half of that population lives nomadically, like very, very truly nomadic and. Um, so like they in the olden days. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't own homes. They don't own land. They don't, for the most part, have running water or electricity. And they subsist off of animal husbandry, which is raising livestock. Uh, and most of the livestock in the country are goats. And goats are used to produce uh, wool or cashmere. And it's a very unique wool called cashmere, but um, it's traded around the world at high prices. And we kind of knew this a little bit going into it, but certainly didn't understand the extent of it, nor the role that these individuals played um, in the larger industry. So they let us stay with them, I should say. They clothed us, they fed us, but no one ever said anything like, hey, you owe us something in return, or um, uh, it was assumed that, yeah, you need help, we're going to help you, we'll take you in. So we spent this this month living with them without really any way of getting home, and I started out Again, as this 23-year-old kid, I just came off of working on Wall Street in New York, and I like couldn't reconcile their lifestyle against the things that felt normal to me. And so I was obsessed with pointing out the differences. Well, this is different. This doesn't feel comfortable. Um, until, uh, and I don't know if I ever told you this story, but um, one day I was herding goats, uh, as you do. I t- they allowed me to t- take the goats out to pasture, and um, I allowed our goats to mix with somebody else's goats. And uh, <laughs> it's weird to say it like that. The, the goats mixed and they couldn't figure out whose goats were whose. Um, just a big problem. You're not supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I see this herder on a horseback carrying like this 14-foot stick riding out there and he's screaming, yelling at me. And it was the first time I felt comfortable. It was the first thing on this trip that I recognized and understood. What I understood was what the emotion was. He was angry at me, so he yelled at me. Um, and so I kind of boiled down this experience to this realization that uh, I actually should be focused on the things that make us the same, not, not different, and recognize that all human beings, regardless of whether or not you are a nomadic herder in Mongolia or you work in finance on Wall Street, we experience the human condition the same way. When you're happy, you smile. When you're sad, you cry generally. And when you're angry, you yell. And so I felt that this was a pretty profound moment. Right, it's like realization for a young kid, sheltered for the most part, um, recognizing that all people are equal, and that was a big, big idea to me. And I didn't know anything about apparel or fashion, like I said. I didn't know that I even had the opportunity to do anything with that. Um, but I knew that that story and that feeling and that moment, that realization, was what mattered. And then you realized that perhaps you were wearing a cashmere sweater, which you purchased maybe for five hundred bucks, and this guy was making at least the raw materials for that. And the reconciliation of that, maybe inequality, was someone else is getting all the benefit of that uh, of that margin. Well, you know, that goes back to that first realization, one that, okay, wait, everybody's equal. Everybody deserves an uh, equal part of the pie, so to speak. What we saw was in these remote regions of Mongolia, 
the herder was subjected to unfair trade practices. And that resulted in um, over leverage by traders who forced prices down, but then sold for large markups. That's where the price was getting inflated in my mind. And uh, we felt that we could kind of intercept or disintermediate that process and in turn access material at fair prices to those communities, but then not mark it up through the process of trading material, processing material, and then eventually making a sweater to then deliver a product that created more equality, made something that was previously not accessible, more accessible, and in fact, democratized the product. From yurt to your closet. Yep. <laughs> Marketing 101. Cut, there you go. Cutting everyone out in yeah. between. So therefore, you, you decided um, to come back to America. You put um, some, a little bit of money together. You then went back with a truck full of garbage uh, bags filled with USD. Mm-hmm greenbacks uh, to buy in cash. I guess you probably tried, you probably, you probably turned it into their currency, which is why yeah, there was two bricks. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you traded all that for, um, for the raw materials to create the first Nardum collection. So yeah. Talk about the first year of how you created product and how you put a website up and, and how that felt. And were you scratching your head and saying, what the hell am I doing all the time? Very painfully. In fact, so we, we bought the material without really knowing what we were going to do with it. But we understood it was a commodity, which meant it had trade value. So we weren't going to go broke off of it. We definitely surprised ourselves in the process of purchasing it, recognizing that it traded in cash. So we did, in fact, um, as the story goes, travel out to this region. I carried 32 plastic shopping bags. It was 65 pounds of money. Actually, I think you're the one that did the calculation for me on how much it weighed. But yeah, it was, uh, it was an adventure. And so we, we, we got the product back. Probably Charlie Maddock who did that calculation. I actually think it was. Good shout out. So so we um, we didn't know anything about the industry. And uh, I knew that I wanted to tell the story. But what I recognized quickly was the product had to be good. Like if you don't have a product that people want, doesn't matter how good the story is. No one's buying it. And I think at the time that we started talking, we were grappling with that, trying to figure it out. And so we were trying to engineer our product to match our expected demographics, our um, product market fit. And it took us some time. It just, it just takes time. And now that I'm involved in kind of multiple brands, what I see is that these things actually in their best format cannot be contrived. It isn't an equation. You actually just need time to get there in terms of um, making the best product for who your customer is. But those things have to evolve naturally Mm -hmm. together and that you develop your audience at the same time that you're developing product for them, and they start to weed out what they want. And over time, you come away with, oh, this is our, this is our hero product. So, so let's talk about price structure. So the, when you started looking at the industry and you looked at the average cashmere sweater, um, what did you set your, your goal at? Did you say, look, I'm going to undercut this by X amount, or did you say, look, this is my cost, and I'm going to try and get a fair margin out of it, and hopefully I'll sell a lot of them? Did you come at it from top down or bottom up, or a bit of both? Honestly, it was a, a bit of both. I mean, we recognized the rules of price elasticity and had modeled that out. But, you know, we were always concerned about uh, things we didn't understand, which was like, if we price it too low, are we creating a cheap brand? Like, you know, is that not how what we want to stand for? Cashmere doesn't remember stand for we that. had lots of conversations about that. And like, we couldn't, we like couldn't reconcile that. We had a really hard time determining which one it was. Plus, 
at that time, distribution for apparel was all over the place. I mean, I think it still is, or um, it, it's still evolving. But at that time, it was feels like um, looking back at it, it was the Wild West. Like, okay, e-commerce is a thing, and it's going to be huge, but not everyone's there yet. At least not all the demographics are there yet, and the systems needed to scale that are very expensive. Um, wholesale is great, and we just hear a lot about how it isn't great, but it actually is. And but the pricing needs to be different, and there are all these variables. We were just kind of at the wrong place at the wrong time, and so I felt like now looking back on it, I knew we just needed to buy time until all the things that we wanted to do were settling. Right. So one, and I would say this is the biggest thing. Um, what makes Nottam specifically valuable today is that it reflects our consumer psychology or the the um, psychology of who our consumers are and that they want to buy things that um, stand for their values or somehow ha- allow them to identify themselves to others, right? So when we first started, the story was great and people wanted things that were sustainable, but they didn't want to pay for it. They weren't really sure how meaningful that was going to be. And millennials who now make up the majority of the consumer spending power weren't there yet. They just didn't have the money. So we had to like ease into that. And then all of a sudden it started to change over and this millennial demographic that in fact really did care about defining themselves by the brands that they chose had the money and but the spending may, but power. But maybe not just about sustainability as much as also about just transparency. I think one of the things that you guys are the poster child of, and I I think I came up with the term uh, that we use here, and I've said it on this podcast many times, you know, upside down and inside out. But in your case, the inside out piece, which is just showing the customer what you do, how you do it, which leads me to sort of the the moment, and I think uh, speaking of Charlie Maddock, who had a small hand in helping you get this video made, um, but talk about this video, you being your own influencer. That's another thing we talk about around here. Don't rely on outside influence if you can be your own influencer and create content that will be so charming that people will not resist, A, you, and, but also your brand and your products and create some loyalty. So talk about that rocket ship video that you created. Well, so we obviously felt that there was a format that would tell our story, <laughs> tell our story in a video format. And um, we just weren't sure what that story, how that story would come together. We didn't know a lot about video. You know, for us, we, like our tone, our voice was what the brand needed to be. We were just kind of scared of that. And I remember people would tell me like, no, it's you, like you're that, that tone, that voice is what is attractive. And um Again, like I it definitely wasn't humility. The tone but, was sort of a, almost a mockumentary of two dudes showing up in Mongolia yeah, trying to start a cashback company, uh, which which kind of came off as incredibly charming and funny. And how how many how many millions of views did that video get? There are a few of them. There's a long I, form and a short yeah, we, form. We've now developed. I mean, every year we now develop a video, millions and millions of views. At this point, um, I don't even look, but at least ten million views. And yeah, again, you know, we the the, the brand video we made really created our brand because people could see it and hear it and hear the nuance and the tone. You know, we wanted to be transparent. We wanted to be sustainable. But we also want to make fun of the whole thing. And have fun. Yeah, Don't take yourself so seriously. In this we industry. never did. We never did. And, and so you have this uh, video, which I remember at the time, you know, there was a, there was a, a, a sticker price on that video and, and we all took a deep breath and you, you were worried about it, of course, but now in, and in, and you know, hindsight being 2020, and to young entrepreneurs who are considering listening to this 
podcast? Should I do the video that I think is such a good idea, but it's going to cost me X thousands of dollars? What would you say to them based on based on the the rewards that you've seen from that video? Yeah, I mean, in that case, it was incredibly rewarding and valuable for us, and it's become a format that our brand kind of hinges on at this point. I'll point out, however, that our story and our uh, that content was unique. Lended itself to this. I, I get that. Totally. And I don't think everything is, but we, we like nurtured that thing. Like we wrote script after script. We like edited video after video. Um, it was a passion, like a real love. Yeah, but when you look at it. other brands like Chubby's, for example, that, you know, completely different brand, completely different thing going on there, but they use the cultural zeitgeist and create short form videos and have done for years yeah, yeah. Uh, to try and get, you know, a people tapped in from the, from the culture that's happening around them. And bringing people back as if it's just as if they're coming back to Netflix. And so I think, you know, there's a, it's hard to, to stumble across the right content. You happen to have it because you created it through the journey you were on. Mm -hmm. But with a little bit of planning and, and forethought, um, there's content in everyone's entrepreneurial life. Video content, I think, is unique for brand development. And if you're starting a brand and uh, you, you're, you're focused on, um, kind of like define yourself, uh, regardless of what your story is or what your product is, if you do it the right way, it can be very, very meaningful for you. You know, I, I'll say, and, you know, it's not, not, not ego-driven, but, but that story and what we had, it needed to live in that format. It didn't live anywhere else really well, to be honest with you, right? That anytime I told it, like for, for wholesale, for instance, remember, we would talk about this all the time. We'd be talking to buyers and whoever else, and they loved when we told the story in person. We used to remember we used to have wholesale meetings in your office mm -hmm. with buyers, and I would tell the story, and it'd be like this great romantic journey we went on, and they'd be like, "Well, like, how are you going to tell that in store?" And we'd be like, "Well, maybe we're making this video. Like, it we'll was, build a yurt." Yeah, we like, <laughs> but it, the, the video format captured it, and it made it digestible and shareable, and something that uh, ultimately um, scaled beyond me telling you the story in person or at a store. We'll be right back. I want to take a second to explain to you why Traub is able to bring you the safari. We pride ourselves in being at the very center of a very global, very complicated consumer and retail landscape. And in our travels, as we help think, manage and expand businesses, in many different channels and geographies, we're able to meet and learn from some of the great minds in this industry. And it's really wonderful to be able to bring them to you. And in doing so, I hope that you, the listener, will be able to learn a little bit more about what we do at Traub as well. Back to the safari. Loyalty. How, how do you keep people plugged in, which originally obviously is a cashmere business and seasonal therefore maybe but i'm sure there's lighter weights but how do you keep that loyalty throughout the year and loyalty you always talked about it being so important to try and generate that that pull from the customer versus always having to push stuff on them how, how does that work in your company yeah well i think it has a lot to do with the integrity integrity of the brand right i think there are um you're, you're seeing now if you take a step back and look at the industry you're starting to see winners emerge right uh brands that are of rising above um, the noise, so to speak. And um, I think the qualifying factor across that cohort is that there is something uniquely human 
about them all, right? Whether it is that value system or that journey or that story or something, or a personality, that is what people, in fact, are really, really connecting to. Um, that a, does that for every successful brand have to have a charismatic founder? Is there a founderism thing no. there? Or, or can it be manufactured? Um, well, I think it's a bit of a stretch to qualify myself as that. Having said that, I... Okay. Oh, uh, you, 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 anyway, go on. <laughs> having said that, <laughs> I think that it's about human connection, right? Like the brands that build loyalty are loyal to identity, things that people can actually understand. Understanding another person is the easiest thing. I mean, it's very, very social. Uh, don't forget that like when we're talking about brands, we're talking about things that are core to human behavior, community, social behavior, right? Like following, like those are things that take place across you know, government, economics. Um, it's bigger than the brand. And if you're tapping into those, um, I think it's psycho psychological, but if you're tapping into those like human behaviors, you can build something that's bigger than the thing you sell. Mm -hmm. And for us, yeah, we make a cashmere sweater or sweaters just in general, and it has um, seasonality to it. But people remember our story and they remember who we are because it is human. It's a person that they come back to. Um, so it's more than the product. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to where we are today. So you started the company seven or eight years ago. Is that about right? Seven, although it feels like 70. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, you, you haven't aged at all, which is yeah. really annoying. Um, but I think that the the interesting thing is, is that you have developed now a platform. Nardom has a platform for incubation or partnership or uh, to help other brands um, through the maze that you have gone through. And you today are a, uh, I won't call it a portfolio, but a platform of three businesses, some of which uh, you are uh, the 100% owner of, Nardom, and others that you are a, an owner of um, uh, in different forms, in different ways, and uh, which I think is remarkable and, and incredibly intelligent. We at, at Traub have worked all over the world with platform companies that uh, represent the big brands uh, in India, in Dubai, in Mexico, et cetera, and they have one plumbing system that they all plug into. And they all run their own businesses very happily uh, and brand managers doing their thing. But each of the brands are not having to invest in their own plumbing. So obviously, it's not the first time that's happened in the world. Uh, LVMH, Caring, VF Corp, PVH, etc. They're all uh, also platform businesses. Sometimes they're run more in silo than others. But I don't know that in digital native land, um, there is a platform yet really to speak of. And... Um, so I'd love your your thoughts on 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 the businesses that you're currently overseeing, uh, Takoon and um, something Navy, and um, and how that came to pass, and what the when sort of the light bulb moments that that caused you to go down that path. I would say very honestly, we're figuring it out, right? Like our priority is working with great brands, the things that we recognize, um, the people or kind of brand identities that we recognize as having been valuable assets or characteristics of what helped Nottam grow. Um, we also failed more than we succeeded early on, meaning that we went through this very heuristic learning experience of making a lot of mistakes. Um, and so we feel that it is a maze building a brand, specifically a brand, not just any business, but a brand. And um, we very simply can help others kind of guide them through that process with 
hey, you use this, not this platform, right? Here's the software that's best for that. You hire this person, then this person. Um, again, we're seeing in real time that there are nuances to that process. And in fact, you know, we don't know where all these um, pieces connect for each individual brand. And so we're really not overstating what it, we are, what we're doing, because we know that it's a process. Just like building Nottam was this process. It needed time and information to be successful. We're going to give this the time and information it needs to be successful. But it, it's the same process in that you know, what we always stuck to at Nottam was this is our brand. This is who we are. This is what we say. This is what we don't say. This is what we stand for. This is what we don't stand for. Um, so we let that live organically and guide our decisions around who we work with and who we don't work with. Um, I'll also say it's a lot of work. Uh, this isn't an infinitely scalable solution in its current state, and maybe it will become one, but it's not It's not today. Um, there's a lot of nuance in the behavior and the information exchange that is not um, kind of categorized right now. Uh, and so we're kind of sifting through that in, in real time. That's like the most honest representation of yeah. where it is today. So um, for those listening, uh, there are probably uh, only two listening who don't know who something navy is or what something navy is but for those two people um t- tell us about something navy and how that came to pass and what you're doing and what it means and um the trajectory there yeah so um i had worked with ariel um via Nottam at, at one point and on a collaboration um kind of like a paid partnership um which you know is common for people in that position and brands like like Nottam who allocate media uh, spend towards... And you're speaking of Ariel China. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, I thought everybody knew she was. Um, Just in case. And uh, we, one, saw this very powerful return from an ad spend perspective. So the way we run our business is um, we spend $1 on advertising, we expect to make $5 off of it or $10, right? And that's the... Uh, ratio that becomes, on ad spend. becomes the tool we use to determine how our business scales. This is one of our biggest cost centers. Um, in any event, we categorize influencers generally into two buckets. You have conversion or brand awareness. They have a really, really big audience, like 70 million uh, followers. That's generally brand awareness because the conversion won't be high. What's the likelihood that all 70 million people like the same stuff and are going to be uh, focused enough on what it is that that partnership stands for. Um, or you find people with much, much smaller audiences and the conversion is high, but the reach is, is relatively small. Um, we saw for the first time somebody who had both uh, at once. And so that was really, really intriguing. And so from a kind of mathematical perspective, I was like, oh, this is very unique. Um, but I didn't know a lot at that time. Um, I wasn't... Uh, like deeply plugged into that world. And then everywhere I went for two months, um, people come up to me and go, oh, yeah, not. I'm like, you work with something Navy and Ariel. And I'd be like, what? Like, <laughs> no, have you seen the video? Like, I'm Matt Scanlon. <laughs> like, I'm the guy. And what I recognized was that wasn't, the reason that was successful as a partnership for us was because this was a brand. Ariel and something Navy were a, a real brand with very, strong um, community uh, with real strong community development and it deserved to be treated like that. And I looked at it with impunity also that I was like, damn, like why can't I have that? Right? Like my life would have been so much easier starting Nottam <laughs> if I had just had people who actually wanted 
what I was selling or what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's like the very high level understanding of how I felt that this was a good partnership. Um, You know, the steps we took afterwards to start working together, it's a, it was a journey. It was a real courting process. And uh, we ended up landing in a place that was very um, authentic for both of our businesses. Um, Again, you know, I'll say we didn't have an agenda. There wasn't an agenda of like, we're going to build this like mothership and this whole, it was like, that's really cool. What she's doing, that brand is very powerful and meaningful. It needs to be treated like a brand. It needs the framework of an organization that can scale against what that demand might actually be. And there were some signs of what that demand could be given some of the work that she had done. Um, But it was assumptive in a lot of ways, and it still is um, in in other ways. And it's become a really kind of beautiful, beautiful marriage. And uh, I'm really excited. And so you're the CEO of of all three businesses? Yeah, I I think... um, think we shouldn't give too much credit to the term CEO. I know that, but you're running these businesses to say that or helping, helping run them. have teams, like, you know me, I'm not that smart. It's the people around me who are smart. It's the, and, and the only thing I do is listen to smart people. So um, a lot of what makes anything that we're working on right now successful is that we are able to retain and develop talent and that talent is able to make decisions that I otherwise wouldn't have been focused enough or, or smart enough to understand. Um, and so we're building up teams specifically around Ariel and something Navy um, that is really, really strong, really um, unique pull on talent right now for the business, which is extremely exciting. Is it a collection business or is it uh, key item driven? Um, honestly, I don't know yet. I, like very transparently, we are – developing collections that launch about every 30 to 45 days online. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's not something that's going to live continuously. Mm-hmm. So we launch it, and it's gone. We launch something else, and then it's gone. Um, it might develop differently, but it. right yep. now that's kind of the focus. And then we pair that with kind of organic media development, yep. right? So the same business she was running, we just kind of expand and put some framework around uh, so that it can also scale. Um, I would say the hardest part of this whole whole business is, you know, some of the stuff that, that actually Nottam and, and I went through very candidly early on, which is like, what's a brand decision and what's a business decision? And, and those things don't always line up. Um, so you're constantly like trying to say to yourself and to the people around you, do we do this because we grow the business off of it? Or we do this because we're true to ourselves and this is our identity um, and what I've recognized about all brand development is if, and just like people, if you show up in two different places and you're two different things, no one remembers who you are. You become basically unrecognizable. And that's the fear of, of kind of any brand development. So how do we, how do, we do all of this and retain that? Well, the, the constant juggle of, of brand equity and brand P&L is um, it's a constant trade-off. Not always, by the way, but, it, but oftentimes. In the best cases, it isn't, right? And I think the more mature a business becomes, the more these things merge. One, because making brand decisions has been successful. Mm-hmm. So like, that's, that's the thing. You're like, well, we're not going to do, do that work. We're not going to sell that thing because it's not authentic to us. So you don't do that thing and you sacrifice some return and you stay true to the identity. But what you see is people, the loyalty increased 
because you were more authentic or, and I hate the word authentic, but you were more yourself. And so uh, over time, that's, yep. that's how that conversation develops. And so the, the other brand is, is Takoon. Um, I remember meeting him uh, in Marvin Traub's office, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. What an incredibly talented guy he is and what a lovely person as well uh, to boot, which yeah. is also quite rare uh, in parts of this industry. Um, quite humble. And tell me, how did that come to pass? So we, um, I met Takoon probably a year and a half ago, and we were introduced by a mutual uh, investor of ours. And, you know, I didn't really know any anything about his prior business, very candidly. And I've said that to Takoon. I, I, I didn't know, right? I didn't come from this industry. I didn't have a, a background on who was cool or who was. Like, I just didn't know. Um, and so we started shopping Barney's, actually. We would walk you know, all six floors or whatever. And he would say, I love this. And I like that. And we were kind of like dating, trying to figure out like, can we work together? Do we see eye to eye? Do we like the same stuff? Um, he obviously has a much more meaningful perspective and eye for clothing and lifestyle. Uh, and so my job at that point actually was just to see if the relationship was good and we can, we can work together. And so actually we'd walk the floor and he'd be like, I love this and I'd like it, but I would say, uh, like, oh, I hate that. I could never make that. Just to see mm-hmm. how he would respond and if we could have um, a conversation. And in fact, he's one of the easiest people to work with. Um, always willing to reconcile, always willing to find what's best for the brand and the business in a collaborative way. And that's what makes him really special. He's both left brain and right brain. It's he, very rare. Especially for designer. And he sees forward and backwards, right? I mean, so what I mean by that is he has great vision for his uh, brand and his identity and the lifestyle of the clothing. And he can see it through, like I've a- I asked him once, I was like, well, did you know like the photography was going to look like this? And he wanted this model when you were designing that piece. And he was like, I see it all. I knew exactly, I, wa- I knew the lighting I wanted. So he's seeing differently than, than you and I. And I recognize that that is superb talent. So, you know, this other piece of him having had the experience necessary to discern, hey, well, we should price it at this. And if we're going to price it at this to reach that customer, then we can remove these pieces or change this fabric to reach that is uh, very special. I would say that above all else is what's going to make this business very successful. Additionally, um, he's learned that through multiple experiences, having built and reinvented his brand multiple times. And are you doing this? Is it, is it an autumn playbook or is it is it a different multi-channel playbook uh, maybe that is uh, designer price point led? Where's the Takoon business today? So uh, our focus initially was to um, make product that was um, accessible in price and style, but make sure that it had the input, that it was clear that the input from a very talented designer was involved. Yeah. And so some of these, dare I say, like essential items, not that different in price from like an Everlane are now, it's as if you took Everlane and you gave it to a very talented designer, like, how would you make this better? So I you know, change fabrics here and I would you know, change this cut here and I'd be more thoughtful about how it fits. Cre- the creative fingerprints. Yeah. And it makes it very, very unique. Um, everybody that has seen the product first touches in is like, oh, yes, this is Takoon, of course, this is gorgeous. And they're used to paying 600 even you know multiple thousands of dollars for his product. And then we go, oh, it's $150. Mm-hmm. And that that's what I wanted to create. Yep. That's what's like at the core of this brand is that emotion, that feeling of even like, wait, what? Like, um, 
And so that, that's what we strive to give. Um, but in terms of playbook and distribution, we think that that lives across different distribution channels. Is that affordability the same as well with um, something Navy? Definitely. So it's a yeah. theme across the platform. I think, and it was the same thing for Nottam. It's the, that, that moment of saying, wow, this is really nice. And then you see the price and you're like reverse sticker shock. Um, again, I think actually you're the first person that said that to me, but, but reverse sticker shock is that emotion that we want to create. And I think it, it ties back to intention and intention relates to somebody, somebody-ness kind of like over the process. And that makes it a human connection. Yep. That's what you can build a brand off of. So as we draw to a close, there are two last questions I want to ask you. Um, and they pertain to maybe giving out a little bit of advice to anyone who Uh-oh. is listening. Um, and I know you're very humble, so let's put that aside for the time being. Um, and, it, you know, you want can give advice and be humble, I think, right? So that, so the first audience would be uh, someone uh, who was at where Nardum was five to ten years ago. And the second uh, advice would be to a big brand who's trying to stay relevant, like a, maybe a billion-dollar brand or a cent, you know, multi-centi million dollar brand. Um, so the first one is, you know, what would you say to someone who's got a $5 million business and uh, trying to duke it out? What's the one or two sort of, you got to do this, man. Uh, people, people made the difference for, for the businesses that I've worked on. Um, I'd say recognizing. So, so two things, sorry, uh, to pick good people, you have to have self-awareness, the self-awareness to recognize, Hey, I'm not good at these things. I shouldn't be making these decisions. Yeah. And here's the things I am good at, and I'm going to stay in my lane and just do that. And I think as an early stage founder, you feel like you need to do it all. You need to do everything. But when you can recognize that you shouldn't be doing these things, because not only are you more inefficient at it, but the output probably just won't be as good, the faster you can scale. That's when we started to scale up was when um, collectively we all could say, hey, like we need need help. and Here's what we need help with. Um, that, That was a big deal. You know, the other thing is, you know, give time, time, you know, like be patient, you have to be patient and you have to be willing to kind of go on this roller coaster of like high highs and low lows that it's, Mm -hmm. and ultimately that's where I've learned the most, right? When I was on the brink of failure and there were times, probably times that you saw that, um, it was like the stress was almost insurmountable. You felt like there was no way we were going to make this work. But when you do make it work, you're like a new person. Like yeah. that, you've like refreshed almost, and that that becomes a really powerful tool in building kind of self reliance and confidence. So, kind of go with the process, recognize what it is. So, so another reversal. Uh, you talked about reverse sticker shock, but there's also reverse envy, right? So, young brands always look up at the big guys, and say, "Oh, I wish I was in all these countries. I wish I had all this distribution." But increasingly, I think the big brands are looking at some of the smaller brands, saying, "I wish I had that kind of." Uh, approachability or um, cool or just ease of, of delivery and of, of how they are handling themselves. What would you say to some of the, the big uh, guys, the big, the brand leaders of some of these other companies that, you know, maybe they need to think about? Well, first of all, the grass is always greener in my it, mind. It sure is. Right? Which is like, why I asked the question. It's never in fact totally better on the other side. Um, but I think what's kind of defining this upcoming generation of developing brands versus what we call kind of legacy brands is closeness to consumer psychology. Yes. Right. That they are, 
not that they're like more direct to the customer, is that in fact they just know um, are more intimately aware of how the customer feels or how they're perceiving um, their purchase behavior, like why they're buying things. And it's I can see it even even at Nottom size that the bigger you get, the harder it is to kind of reconcile that psychology against all the moving pieces that inevitably have to tick into place to make the right decision and get the engine moving um, and, and grow the business. Um, so I think that there's two ways big big businesses can go about this. One, start um, retaining and acquiring younger talent. So bringing in uh, younger talent who understands this consumer psychology into decision-making, um, which is kind of scary, but I actually think would have a big impact. You know, so many times I thought, well, like, just put me in charge of, like, one of these big companies. I could just, like, tell them what I think they don't know. And maybe I'm just an idiot. But, but I, you know, I think that they're missing some of that sometimes. Um, the other piece is... So just to summarize that, it's sort of consumer zeitgeist, having a finger on the pulse of the consumer, what they really care about and want. Well, inevitably, like, I am the consumer. So I took investment from an individual who's been in this industry for a very long time. I'm not going to say his name, but we both know him. And he's been part of building some of the biggest brands that we know of. And what he told me when I first met him was this incredible story of his journey that he inevitably related to me. But what he said was, every time I was building a business, I was the customer, right? When I was building this brand, it was clothing that matched the time and place I was in my life or the people in my life were at, right? Um, so when I was in my 50s, I had a brand that serviced that customer. When I was in my 30s, we were making clothing for, for these customers. And what he pointed out was your journey will be similar. You'd understand your demographic. Um, and so you're making stuff for them. Mm -hmm. And then you'll be in a different demographic or an older demographic, and you'll want to make things for them. Um, but I think that these larger brands don't have the people that are actually in that demographic making the decisions. Yeah. And so that's kind of the disconnect, in my opinion. It's yeah, so, subtle. So I, I talked earlier about upside down and inside out. So that's the upside down piece. Mm -hmm. Upside down is listening to all the young people and giving them power to actually help make the decisions, right? Yeah. And, you know, I forever I wanted to manage people. I wanted a big team. And now we have <laughs> huge teams. People are like, oh, yeah, managing people is so hard. Um, it is. <laughs> And and there are definitely generational differences uh, in how management styles or what management styles are preferred and what works. And um, if you're a really big legacy business, you might not be prepared for uh, yeah. that, that transition. Um, so there are subtleties to it all, but I do think that they're factoring in how these larger brands are, are making decisions and what would help them make better decisions. I will say the other piece of this is I'm waiting for these really big big brands to like get it that they need to start acquiring some of these smaller businesses that there's a crop of businesses between 20 and 30 million right now taking on a little bit too much venture funding but have like really strong brands and positioning but infrastructure and and kind of the things needed to scale it up to hundreds of millions aren't there those are opportunities that I'm not really seeing access and maybe the balance sheet doesn't afford it but I think it would make a big difference. No, you're absolutely right. We've, we've spoken about it here before. The CBG land has, has been doing that for and beauty the too. last 10 years. You're right, and in beauty. Um, in the broader, let's say, retail apparel, accessory world, not so much. And I, I, don't, I don't necessarily understand it. And maybe I just, don't, like I said, don't understand the balance sheet well enough of those larger businesses. But it doesn't, it 
doesn't make sense to me because there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of value. Yeah. Well, there we go. Opportunity and value. M&A spree. <laughs> Listen, Matt, thank you so much for, for joining me here on the safari. It's just such a, a wonderful treat to be able to sort of wander back through memory lane uh, and not quite back to Mongolia in my case, but uh, I, I almost felt like I was there with you. So I encourage everyone to not only see all your content, but also it's freezing outside. So go and, go and buy some sweaters from Matt Scallon yeah. <laughs> and, and Adam. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.